you have your Bibles, I invite you to join me once again in Acts chapter 21. That is where we're going to return. Acts 21, starting in verse 17. Uh, If you don't have a Bible with you, I'd encourage you to uh, use one of the black Bibles in front of you. Uh, If you need help finding the passage, I believe it's page 875. Um, Once again, Acts 21, verse 17, and we will read through verse uh, 36. I invite you to follow along with me as I read. is what God's word says. When we had come to Jerusalem, the brothers received us gladly. On the following day, Paul went in with us to James and all the elders were present. After greeting them, he related one by one the things that God had done among the Gentiles through his ministry. And when they heard it, they glorified God. And they said to him, you see, brother, how many thousands there are among the Jews who, of those who have believed. They are all zealots for the law, and they have been told about you that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. What then is to be done? They will certainly hear that you have come. Do therefore what we tell you. We have four men who are under a vow. Take these men and purify yourself along with them and pay their expenses so that they may shave their heads. Thus all will know that there is nothing in what they have been told about you, but that you yourself also live in observance of the law. But as for the Gentiles who have believed, we have sent a letter with our judgment that they should abstain from what has been sacrificed to idols and from blood and from what has been strangled and from sexual immorality. Then Paul took the men and the next day he purified himself along with them and went into the temple giving notice when the days of purification would be fulfilled and the offering presented for each one of them. When the seven days were almost completed, the Jews from Asia, seeing him in the temple, stirred up the whole crowd and laid hands on him, crying out, Men of Israel, help! This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people and the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. For they had previously seen Trophimus, the Ephesian, with him in the city, and they supposed that Paul had brought him into the temple. Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut. And as they were seeking to kill him, word came to the tribune of the cohort that all Jerusalem was in confusion. He at once took soldiers and centurions and ran down to them. And when they saw the tribune and the soldiers, they stopped beating Paul. Then the tribune came up and arrested him and ordered him to be bound with two chains. He inquired who he was and what he had done. Some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. And as he could not learn the facts about the, uh, because of the uproar, he ordered him to be brought into the barracks. And when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, Away with him. Would you pray with me? Dear Father, we thank you for the truth of your word that you have provided to us, which is profitable for teaching and reproof and correction and training in righteousness. Lord, just by your hand as you grow the flowers, would your spirit plant the truth of your word into our hearts this morning so that Christ-likeness may bloom 
and grow in us and in our lives. Help us to understand your word preached. Give us clarity of thought so that our minds and our thoughts may match your mind and thoughts. We commit this time to you, Lord. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. If you were to turn all the way back to Acts chapter 1, uh, you would find Jesus is still in the, in the flesh, present with his disciples before he ascends into heaven. And um, right before that happens, he informs them that they will be his witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and all, to, to the end of the earth, to all the nations. You see, to this point in history, God was very specific in revealing himself to the Jewish nation through the law of Moses that he had given them. And they worshiped God in the temple of Jerusalem. And so uh, Jerusalem was very much a focal point of sorts uh, in God's interaction with humanity, with his created order. Um, But when Jesus came, all of that changed. It, it, It transitioned because Jesus fulfilled the law And Jesus replaced the temple. Jesus' ministry marked a transition of sorts in how God was to be known and how God was was to be experienced, how God was to reveal himself to the world. You see, Judaism was always uh, a come-and-see sort of religion. If you want to know God, if you want to worship God, if you want wisdom from God, you have to come and see. You have to come into the temple. You have to go to Jerusalem to properly worship God. But now with this new commission in the first chapter of Acts, Jesus actually shifts that mentality. It changes from come and see to go and tell. Go, go beyond. Jerusalem, go beyond this region, go beyond Judea, go into the whole world to be my witness. And what this sets up directly is that God's redemptive salvation is is available to all nations, not just one nation. That God is over all nations, not just one nation. That's what it sets up directly. But what this sets up indirectly, however, is a bit of a culture clash. At this moment... When Jesus tells his disciples to go into all nations, they will be his witness in all nations, it it, it sets into motion two locomotives traveling at high speeds directly at each other on on a collision course. When when Jesus instructs his disciples to be witnesses in all nations, what's happening is Jesus is calling uh, people by the power of his spirit from different communities and different cultures and different backgrounds He's calling them to himself, seeking them out, bringing them in, and he's forming a new community. He's creating a new kingdom, his kingdom. And this proved to be somewhat of a a difficult endeavor for people in the first century because the Jewish people and the non-Jewish people of the world, that we know them in scripture as Gentiles, had such a radically different culture. They came from completely different backgrounds. They barely even associated with each other. And so as Christ draws them together 
into this new community to be brothers and sisters of Christ, to be a family of God, we actually see this abrasive friction that occurs as they try and figure out how to live in one community when their prior communities were so dramatically different. And this is such a dominant recurring theme throughout the entire book of Acts, if you've been traveling with us. And it culminates here in Acts 21. The two locomotives crash into each other here, and we actually see the fallout of it in subsequent chapters as it pertains specifically to the Apostle Paul. Because the Apostle Paul is a character, uh, a figure who is kind of stuck in between the two cultures. You see, Paul has just returned from a missionary journey where he spent years telling Gentiles, non-Jewish people, about Jesus, the good news of Jesus. And now he is back in Jerusalem, which is the hub of Judaism. And uh, this is what we see in our story. The the passage plays out in four different sections. We'll walk through them together. Uh, In in section number one, we we see this uh, reuniting in Jerusalem, verses 17 through the first part of verse 20. Uh, Paul meets with James and uh, some other leaders within the church of Jerusalem. Uh, James is an important figure in the Bible. He's the brother of Jesus. Uh, He's the one who wrote the book of James that we have in the New Testament. And from church history, he really is recognized as the primary leader of the church in Jerusalem in the first century, that first Christian church James oversaw. And so he's significant, and he really has a grasp on what's happening culturally in the city of Jerusalem. Um, as, they, as they meet with one another, Paul takes the opportunity to, to report to them all the wonderful, amazing things that God has done on uh, his missionary journey. He, he's just sharing one story after another about the amazing ways that God has moved through the Gentiles. And we, and we get the picture that Paul's not boasting here. He's not showing off. If anything, he's boasting in the Lord. And it's received well um, because at the beginning of verse 20, when James and the elders heard this report, they actually glorified God. That was the direction of their praise was towards God. They recognized that God was the one doing this work. They're, they're not saying, Paul, look, at, pat on your back, Paul, look how good you did. No, they, they glorify God. They praise God for how he works in the hearts of the lost. And then the elders reciprocate. They take the opportunity to inform Paul what's been happening in Jerusalem. Not only, Paul, has God been working among the Gentiles, but he's also been working among the Jews. Thousands within the region have come to know and believe in Jesus. And what's portrayed in these beginning verses of our story is just this very sweet moment um, among church leaders. There's a camaraderie of sorts. It's like they're old friends gathered around the table, swapping ministry stories, wonderful stories. It's a very pleasant moment for Paul. And if you know the rest of the book of Acts, you know that this is just about the last moment recorded uh, for Paul that is pleasant. Because from this moment on, um, starting in this conversation, there is this downward trajectory of events for Paul, of, of morale for Paul. And it begins when the church leaders from Jerusalem share about a problem. That's the second section, a problem here uh, in Jerusalem. Uh, it's verses, uh, verse 20 through 22. They explain to Paul that thousands of Jews have believed, which, which means that they've put their faith and trust in Christ. 
They've put their faith and trust in Christ and Christ alone. They understand that they are saved by grace through faith and not by works. The only works they're saved by are the works of Jesus Christ. They understand that they're not saved by the law. However, they are all zealous for the law. Now, now what they're talking about here in the law, it's the law being the law that was given to Moses by God uh, up on Mount Sinai, which was the foundation of, of Ju- Judaism. And, and so for them to say that they were zealous for the law, it, it means that they remained enthusiastic about keeping the law. And the reason for this is because much of the law of Moses and what it represented was tied closely to their cultural identity as ethnic Jews. They understood that they weren't bound to it, that they're not saved by it, but, but to give it up would be like, it would feel like giving up a piece of my heritage in the eyes of a Jew. And and so that's the situation within the church of Jerusalem at the moment. And that's not even the problem, right? That they were still zealous for the law. They're allowed to be believers and still keep the law out of conviction uh, as, as long as they don't think that the law saves them. The problem comes in verse 21 when Paul is informed that there's this nasty rumor going around about him and his work. They tell Paul that these new Jewish believers have been told about you and, and you and that you teach all the Jews who are among the Gentiles to forsake Moses, telling them not to circumcise their children or walk according to our customs. Right? They are under the assumption, based on what they have heard, that Paul is traveling throughout the world profaning the name of, of, of Judaism, profaning those who desired to keep the, the law. That Paul is telling Jewish people across the world to turn their backs on their culture and to turn their backs on their heritage. They think that Paul is instructing them to abandon their Jewish way of life. And this doesn't sit well with the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And we see that their frustration with Paul stems from just this desire to kind of hold on to this national identity. And and, and Paul here comes off as kind of a traitor to the Jewish people. Now, based on what we have, and based on even how James and these other church leaders in Jerusalem react to Paul, we see no evidence that Paul is actually teaching this. Once again, this is all based on hearsay. This is based on so-and-so told me, that so-and-so told them, that so-and-so told them that Paul is teaching this to all the Jews among the Gentiles, right? It didn't happen. But we can kind of connect the dots and see where the rumor may have originated. Um, There's two primary passages in Scripture where Paul actually speaks to uh, how the, the Jewish and Gentile believers are to treat each other when their convictions and their culture clash, when they come together. There are Romans 14 and 15, and then 1 Corinthians 8 and 9. I'll leave you to read those and study them uh, more in depth on your own time. But, but the overall conclusion that Paul draws is the same in both of those passages. Um, essentially, Paul communicates that when it comes to conflicting convictions, 
that are secondary in nature, not primary to the gospel message. Paul explains when it comes to these secondary convictions, it would do us well, it would be right of us to be sensitive and mindful of the convictions of others for the sake of unity. Paul makes the claim that if it's not primary to the gospel, you are not bound to my convictions and I am not bound to yours. But then Paul goes on to say in those passages that at the end of the day, the onus is on you as an individual to pursue unity and gospel advancement by actually humbly giving up your own liberties for the sake of others when in their company. He's saying as you are interacting with people with different convictions, it would do you well to humbly submit to their convictions when you are with them. There's a great quote that I came across in my reading um, about how we're to deal with even our relationship to our own freedoms. We have a lot of freedoms in Christ. Um, the, The commentator writes that the truly emancipated spirit, like Paul's, is not in bondage to its own emancipation. He continues, liberty is a great thing, but sometimes the expression of liberty can be counterproductive. What the author is saying is that in Christ, we have many freedoms, but the day that we stand firm and say, I have this freedom and I'm going to take advantage of it, even at cost to you stumbling because you have a conviction about this, is not right. It's, It's counterproductive. And so this is Paul's attitude, and this is why he writes in 1 Corinthians 9 in regards to evangelism. He says, to the Jews, I became as a Jew, like a Jew, in order to win the Jews. To to those who are under the law, right? I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, that I might win those outside the law. Paul's basically saying, I became all things to all people. As long as I didn't sacrifice my primary convictions about the gospel message of Jesus Christ, I am going to humbly submit to to these other people. And from this, we see that Paul is not instructing the Jews, per se, to actually abandon the law. He's not prohibiting from the law, but he is giving them the freedom to distance themselves from it if it's for the purpose of unity or evangelism. That's what Paul taught. And somewhere in the rumor mill, this message morphed into this claim that Paul teaches all the Jews among the Gentiles, those foreigners, those people that are living in other countries, Jewish people, to, to, forsake, the, to, to forsake Moses, to forsake the law. And this accusation against Paul is based on a distorted view of what he said and wrote. This is really, once again, just, an all, just a big misunderstanding. It's all hearsay based on what so-and-so said about so-and-so. Now, regardless whether the claim is true or not, the problem is that the claim exists. And the Jerusalem leaders are concerned that as soon as word gets around that Paul is present in the city, he will be in grave danger. Paul is like a lightning rod here, ready to attract just this pent-up energy of frustration. And so they ask the question in verse 22, what then is to be done? 
They, they will certainly uh, hear that you have come. That's the problem. You are here. People are angry about you, even though it's, uh, it's, it's misguided. It's not true. We, we need to do something about this anger to make sure that you're not in trouble. And that brings us to the third section. Immediately they come up with a solution, verses 23 uh, through 26. They come up with a solution. Who knows if it's a good idea or a bad idea at the time. It may have been well meaning. It doesn't end well for Paul. Uh, hindsight is twenty twenty. Um, regardless, they've worked it out in their minds. In verse 24, they explain that there are four men that they know who are under a vow um, according to the law of Moses, and they want Paul to take the men to the temple, purify himself, and then pay their expenses so that they can shave their heads as a part of the completion of this vow. Uh, th- this vow, we won't get into it specifically, but it was most likely they've taken what's called the Nazarite vow. If you want more details, you can find it in Numbers chapter 6. The first 21 verses there explain the Nazarite vow. Um, f- for our purposes this morning, though, I want to talk about Paul's relationship to these men, what he's actually doing. Um, according to the law of Moses, in order to end the Nazarite vow, you had to bring a very large offering of of all different sorts of animals, all different kinds of grains. And so you could imagine that it was actually very costly, right? It was very expensive to end the Nazarite vow. And Nazarites, those who took this vow, they were regarded so highly by the Jewish community that anybody who offered them assistance, financial assistance, were held in high honor. And so Paul would look very good providing the funds for four of these uh, men who have taken the vow. One author writes that funding one Nazarite vow demonstrated a high regard for Jewish tradition. Funding four would have been, would have been front page news. The, the entire community would have seen and known that Paul had paid for these four men to finish their vow. So what's happening here, right or wrong, this comes off as nothing more than a publicity stunt for Paul to clean up his image to the Jewish community. It's like when politicians are on the campaign trail and they're out there uh, kissing babies. Right, right, if they're kissing babies as an onlooker, you say, oh, oh that candidate isn't a heartless, blood-sucking reprobate <laughs> because he's kissing babies. If he's kissing babies, he must be a pretty good guy, right? That's what's happening, right? They they look at this as an opportunity for Paul to publicly observe the law of Moses in a major way so that they can all see Paul and say, oh, he's an observant of the law. He's not who we thought he was. Continuing on in verse 25, the church leaders quote something. Um, Once again, we won't get into it, but uh, it's four stipulations for Gentiles. This actually comes straight from Acts 15. It was the result of what's uh, called the Jerusalem Council. In the Jerusalem Council, this debate existed. What do we do with Jews and Gentiles as they come into believer, uh, into the Christian community as believers? More specifically, they were, they posed the question, do Gentiles need to become Jewish first before becoming believers? 
And James was part of this, uh, this conversation. And, and what resulted is they, they decided that no, Gentiles do not need to become Jewish first to, uh, to, to become believers, but we are going to ask them to follow these four restrictions when they are with Jewish people just to be sensitive to these convictions. And so in, in quoting this in this passage, the reason it's quoted is because the church leaders are really putting Paul at ease, right? They're saying, Paul, we want you to do this, but please know that where we, we still stand in agreement with the Jerusalem council, that the, the Gentiles do not need to become uh, Jewish. And so, so they basically, in this solution, they tell Paul, go do this to help dampen the tension, but know that we are still on the same page with you, that the Gentiles do not need to, to follow the law, that they're not bound to this. And so in verse 26, we find Paul does exactly what the elders of Jerusalem instructed him to do. Right? He, he, goes, he goes and he does it. Unfortunately for Paul, what was meant to pacify the Jewish community ironically put a target on his back, which brings us to the final section of the story in verse 27. Um, as Paul is in the temple fulfilling the end of his responsibilities regarding these vows, there are some Jews who are from out of town who, who see Paul and they, they cause quite a commotion. What they feared is now coming into fruition. They essentially put him under citizen's arrest and they say, why? They, they cry out, men of Israel, help. This is the man. This is the man who is teaching everyone everywhere against the people of the law in this place. Moreover, he even brought Greeks into the temple and has defiled this holy place. That was the charge. That's what got them riled up. Um, to understand this, we've got to understand something about the temple. The temple uh, was set up with several different sections, uh, several different courts is what they would call them. And the further inward that you would travel into the temple, the more restrictive it became. And so Greeks or Gentiles were allowed in the outer courts, but they were not allowed in the inner courts. And this was so serious that there were actually warning signs posted at the gates of the inner courts stating that no foreigner was allowed into the temple and anyone who was caught would bear personal responsibility for their own death. That's a direct quote from the signs that were posted. That's how serious this was to the Jews. And so they're accusing Paul of not only teaching against the law of Moses and against the temple, as we've already seen, but even worse, now Paul has actually defiled the temple by bringing foreigners into it, which was a charge punishable by death. Now, the terrible injustice of the scene, however, is that Paul didn't actually do this. He's innocent of that specific charge. We see how weak the accusation is in verse 29. These Jewish men had seen Paul in the city outside of the temple with a man named Trophimus, who they knew was from Ephesus. They knew he was a Gentile. And so when they see Paul in the temple... They just assume that Paul had brought Trophimus into the temple with him. And as a result of mere conjecture and speculation, mass 
chaos ensues. A, a, a very large crowd drags Paul out of the temple gates and they intend to kill him right then and there. And it takes Roman military intervention uh, at this point to establish order. Um, you see, at this time, the Romans occupied this region and so they had the final authority in such matters. And uh, we get an idea of how much it took to pacify the, the crowd, how large of a scale the situation was. We're told in verse 31 that this tribune, who was a Roman official, took soldiers and centurions into the riot. Centurions is plural. So we know that there was at least two of them. And each centurion in the Roman military oversaw a hundred soldiers. And so there's at least 200 Roman soldiers that are present in the scene. Um, And what ends up happening is the tribune ends up arresting Paul and having him thrown in the barracks. And we get the sense that the tribune actually arrests Paul not to protect the people from Paul, but rather to protect Paul from the people. The tribune's first priority is to restore order. And the only way that this riot is going to settle down is if Paul is actually physically removed from their presence. And that's where we leave Paul in the story. He's in the barracks. That's how the story plays out. Now, Now, I want to draw our attention, however, to the progression of mistruth and falsities in the story that led to this point. Let's take a moment to diagnose what's going on here. When when Paul enters Jerusalem, he's already at a disadvantage because the Jewish Christians in the city have painted a picture in their mind about who Paul is and what he is teaching people. They have already generated a profile of Paul in their minds, not based once again on their own observations, not rooted in fact, but based purely on, on hearsay. The the church leaders who are on Paul's side said this in verse 21, they have been told about you. And so right away, you can see just the damaging effect of assumptions and of gossip and on speaking up to things that you have no business speaking to because you do not have all the facts. Paul had no chance As a result, they already formed an opinion about Paul without giving him a chance. And then, because of this existing prejudice against Paul, which originated in mistruth, ends up generating more assumptions and more mistruth and more deceit and more distortion of the facts. The the, the Jewish people, the guy says, look, here's Paul in the temple. He's the one that hates the Jewish culture. He's the one who hates Judaism. He's the one that hates the temple, that hates the law of Moses. Wait a minute. Didn't we see him downtown a couple of days ago with that Gentile, Trophimus? Well, Paul hates the temple so much. Why on earth would he show his face here for any other reason but to defile the temple? Trophimus has to be around here somewhere. This is an atrocity. We've got to put a stop to this. Let's Get them. And then there's mass chaos among hundreds, if not thousands of people without even a single meager attempt to determine the truth. 
you'll notice that with all of the thousands of people in Jerusalem involved in this story, in this altercation, the first person in the story to seek out the truth is actually the Roman tribune at the end of verse 33. It it says there that he inquired who he was, referring to Paul, and inquired what he had done. It was the tribune saying, now hold up, time out. Can we just hit the pause button for a second and find out the facts? Who is this guy? What has he done? And then the next verse is very telling. The crowd had already jumped off the deep end and given themselves over to mistruth. Verse 34, in response to the tribune's inquiry, some in the crowd were shouting one thing, some another. Confusion, chaos. And the Roman tribune, it says, could not learn the facts because of the uproar. It was impossible to determine the truth because of this uproar. That right there in a nutshell tells us of the devastating nature of this story. The devastating nature and the catastrophic results of mistruth. No doubt the text is explaining how easy it is for our warped minds to warp a narrative. This story highlights the danger of playing loosely with the truth. And the challenge for us is that mistruth is so easy to buy into. Because oftentimes there's a small morsel of truth embedded into it. Right? Paul did teach something about the law of Moses. Paul was with Trophimus. It's been said that the best lies have a small element of truth. But it's like looking into a funhouse mirror. Right When I look into a funhouse mirror, I see my reflection. I see an image of myself. This much is true, but it's distorted. It's a distorted perception of how I look. It's a manipulation of the truth. And it becomes increasingly more important to understand the truth of mistruth in our culture, which plays so fast and loose with the concept of truth. Which, which offers the funhouse mirror image. What is truth? That is the question of our age. The concept of objective absolute truth is under attack and under scrutiny in our time. The philosophers of our day would say that all truth and knowledge is merely a matter of relative perspective and interpretation. In 2018... Oprah Winfrey, she, she received the Lifetime Achievement Award in the gold, at the Golden Globes. And in her acceptance speech, she said, what I know for sure is that speaking your truth is the most powerful tool we all have. I want to try and be gracious, but media constantly bombards our minds with this idea to live your truth and be your truth. It's a message which says that truth can be whatever you want it to be. It's the concept that you can control and you can manipulate and you can mold the truth itself to your liking. And it's so appealing, if I'm honest, because it's easier and it's desirable. Instead of making an effort and putting in the work to determine the truth, we take shortcuts, we jump to conclusions. And we accept in our minds the warped version of what we see. 
You see, we want the funhouse image. We accept and even pursue the distortion because our minds are distorted as a result of being fallen and broken in our nature. And I would rather change the truth to fit the narrative that I desire than be confronted with the fact that in my sin I have a fractured mind that does not see the world as it should. That my mind and body and spirit and soul is broken and it needs to be fixed. You see, these Jewish men in the temple, they had no desire for what was actually true in the situation. They didn't have this desire for justice. The only thing they desired was to see Paul dead. And they manipulated the truth to justify their actions, to fit their desire. They used mistruth as a weapon to justify their wants and desires. They used truth as a means to an end. When we are instructed and encouraged to live our truth, it's a means to an end. But what God tells us in his word, however, is that truth is not a means to an end, but that truth is the end. Truth is the goal. Christianity is built on the truth of God and his existence. Truth is intimately and permanently tied to God as he has revealed himself to his created world in which he has dominion and governance over. And the embodiment of truth itself is Jesus. John 14, Jesus tells his disciples, I'm going to go to my father's house in heaven, but don't worry, I'm going to prepare a place for you and I'm going to come back and get my own. I'm going to return. And Thomas, one of his disciples says, Lord, Jesus, how can we know the way? Essentially, Thomas asks, how can I get to God? How can I know God? How can I commune with God? How can I see God? And this is what Jesus says, I am the way, Thomas, the truth. And the life, no one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. You see, truth, according to Jesus himself, is not some kind of philosophical construct. Truth is a person. Truth is a person. And the only way we can really know truth in this world is by fixing our eyes on that person, on Jesus Christ, to see the world the way Jesus sees the world. And the only way to properly commune with God and worship God uh, is through truth. Once again, another conversation that Jesus had with the, uh, with the Samaritan woman at the well, specifically about worship in John 4. In that conversation, the woman tells Jesus, you as a Jewish man say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship in the temple. And Jesus replies to her saying, the day is coming and is now here where you won't worship God in Jerusalem, but you will worship him in spirit and truth. And to worship God in truth means that our worship of God must conform to the revelation of God in scripture. Our lives as a spiritual act of worship must be informed by what God has said about himself and what he has done in creation. That is the truth. And it is so liberating 
because I am here to tell you today that you do not need to build your life on your truth, which is nothing more than a house of cards. Instead, we follow the one who is called truth and has proved himself as such through his death and resurrection. And so let's walk forward, desiring, longing for God's truth instead of trying to design our own. Would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we praise you that you have made yourself known to us. That truth is not just uh, the goal or the end, but, but it is attainable. We can know truth. D- despite our broken minds, um, despite our own sin, despite our weakness, you by your own power and volition have made the truth of yourself known to us. And, and we wouldn't be able to know you given our fallen state without you acting in created order. And for that, we praise you, Father, and we ask that your spirit would move in our midst and that we would see it. And I pray, Father, that we would praise Jesus' name for revealing the Godhood three in one to us in all of his work and sacrifice. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.